coaches. Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is podcast number 11 now, and I'm Joel. And, well, Happy New Year, first of all. It's uh, the start of 2018, and I want to wish you all um, an amazing year, full of tons of brilliant coaching. So, um, yeah, today we're going to be exploring purpose and vision with Bob Anderson. So I'll just say a few words about Bob. He's the creator of the Leadership Circle Profile, which is a, um, a leadership assessment tool, but like a 360 tool, which I think is very cool and, and I'm a lot better than a lot of the 360 tools I've seen out there. Uh, and he's the author of um, Mastering Leadership, which is a book that came out a couple of years ago now, um, really cool book, got a load of great reviews. And we're going to be speaking about what are the practices that Bob has used to refine and define his sense of purpose and the vision that he wants his life to be about. He's going to talk about three mindsets, leadership mindsets, and I'll just give you an overview of them now. Um, he's going to talk about the reactive mindset, which is really oriented to living from the outside in. It's it's kind of defined by what it thinks others want it to be and do. And it's, it's kind of um, oriented to living up to and out of all these messages that it's um, adopted from from growing up. And it's really focused on problems and run by a lot of fear. It's not effective in leadership um, necessarily. So... To shift, well, what are the practices you need to do? Well, one of them is to clarify vision and purpose, and that can help you orient from what Bob calls the creative mindset, which is inside out. That's the self-authored mindset. You know, it's internalized its own values and and it and it and discern what they are and lives from them. And it's much more able to to take risks and to lead more effectively. And then we'll talk about the integral mindset and he'll talk about the integral um, informed by grace which is a really beautiful phrase and the integral mindset's really built for complexity it's very effective in leading it's a, it's a kind of servant leader mindset with a systemic vision on the whole rather than parts and the intuitive capabilities start to come online at this level of leadership so um as I said, Bob's going to share what are the practices that help us shift in these levels of leadership. So Bob is also on the faculty of our online coach training program called the Art of Developmental Coaching. And it's all about how do you help leaders to to uncover these hidden operating systems, these, these leadership mindsets, in order to help them grow in, in ways that are very appropriate, that help them thrive to, to lead more effectively. So you can find out more about that at coachesrising.com forward slash art of developmental coaching. So let's dive in. I hope you enjoy this. Let me know what you think. I love hearing from you and I'll see you on the other side. I think I'll just start by asking you what makes a great leader? Is that, <laughs> is that, that's the reaction I want. It's a big, it's a big question. It's really interesting. I mean, we're recording, right? So, well, it's just interesting because it's like the unanswerable question. And yet it's not. One of the things we're, I'm working on the next book, 
uh, which we're calling leadership at scale right now. Man, we're making the claim that, you know, in the past you've heard leadership is most studied, least understood of subjects. And we don't think that's true anymore. Mm. Uh, most studied, maybe, I don't know. But uh, I think we know what it is. And um, I think uh, we ask leaders, does it matter? Does effectiveness and leadership matter to everything we hold dear in organizations? The organization's results, culture, people thriving versus being depleted and so on and so on. And everybody goes, yes. And then we ask people to describe it in our various surveys, describe the kind of leadership that if it existed in the organization would allow it to thrive in its current marketplace and into the future. That's the question we ask. And we've got thousands, 50, 80,000 surveys, and they all describe the same picture. Hmm. Very, very similarly around the world. And then we just completed this written comment study where we actually went to leaders and, and, and looked at their written comments in our database. We have over a million surveys. So we went and said, nobody that I've seen has ever really studied the written comments. If it's out there, we haven't seen it. And uh, so we did a massive study, and that's the subject for the new book. And it's very, very clear. I mean, we sorted for, from a data standpoint, most effective, least effective, highest creative, lowest reactive, highest reactive, lowest creative, and then read the comments. And the themes were startlingly different. And uh, what makes for an effective leader is not the stuff we get promoted for. It's not our technical know-how. It's not our creative brilliance. It's not our genius. It's not our smarts. It's not our drive for results. It's those things are necessary. You don't get to play if you don't have them, especially at senior levels. And it's a very fierce gauntlet that selects people up through the ranks. But then when you look at how they're described in writing, you get that the worst leaders and the best leaders are equally talented on all, on all those things. Equally talented. Both described as having creative genius, drive for results, smart, uh, technical knowledge, domain industry knowledge, all this stuff, you know, equal, but experienced really differently. And then you look at what are the biggest differentiators and uh, six out of the top 10 have to do with people. How good are you at interpersonal relationships? How well do you develop teams and mentor people and empower people? And how approachable are you? And do you listen? And those are the biggest differentiators. Did, did it surprise you seeing that? Yeah. And then we were surprised by why we were surprised because we've been seeing it for a year. I think we were surprised because we've looked so long through a quantitative lens and I'm a, I'm a geek in that way. So, you know, I can run all kinds of analyses. And when you run regression analyses and put in various of the key dimensions on our survey and say, well, which ones really explain effectiveness? It's always uh, achieving uh, vision, purpose, results, 
that, that carry the day. Relating and relationship uh, is a close second, but it, it doesn't explain as much variance by a good margin. And so you say, well, it's really a business leadership assessment. That makes sense. And so um, then you go and look at the quantitative, qualitative data, and it's all about people, teams, integrity, vision, passion. I want to make sure, because we're using these terms creative and reactive and integral leaders, and I want to set a bit of context for people listening that, you know, they know what you mean, what we mean when we talk about those. Mm. Um, could you just describe in a, and you've written a whole book about these, but in a kind of nutshell, what's a reactive leader? Um, a reactive leader would be a leader who's uh, primarily their inner operating system is what Bob Keegan would call socialized mind. Um, and they're, therefore their, their very core, their very identity, who they take themselves to be is what we would call outside in. It's authored by others versus the self-authored leader, creative leader authored by self. Right. So I'm moving from you and how you see me defines me and makes me up to uh, I'm interested in your perspective, but I define what makes me up. And so I'm much more focused at self-authoring on creating what matters most versus being whoever I have to be in order to be uh, seen as successful in the, the cultural surround. So I'm less living from uh, a thousand other voices that have told me who I have to be and how I have to be in order to be worthy, good, right, successful. And I've discerned out of all that more of what really matters to me and how I want to stand and play in the world. Right. And, the, and, and the, I have a vision for that. I've even started to discern out of all of the surround uh, a deeper sense of purpose that seems to want to come through me. Um, and I use that language deliberately. It's almost as if it's uh, one of the things I'm playing with is that as we move further on this evolutionary journey, we move from being authored by others to being self-authored what matters to me and how do I get about that to then being authored by something larger than me. Yeah. I am no longer self-authoring. I'm now being authored by um, grace, by a larger wholeness or an emergent future that seems to have chosen me for this piece of it. Would that fit for you being the integral stage or is that, is that kind of necessary, but independent? The more, the more integral we move, the more uh, people describe that as being how it feels. So uh, at reactive, I'm living up to outside expectations at creative. I'm stalking my longing and creating a vision for that and, and, and a life and an organization around that and, a, and an authenticity and a set of values that I can embody 
that's now who I am. At Integral, lots happens at Integral. But along this theme of self-authorship, I start to notice that the longing has been stalking me. And I have been responding. And so now I'm stalking the longing that's stalking me, and that opens into a much larger reality that um, I'm a small part of. And this authentic self that I took to be myself moves from subject to object. In Kagan's language, um, when we are in the reactive self, I am, I am this set of outside expectations. This is who I am. When I, I am my uh, success, I am my smarts. I am my uh, uh, relationship and people's approval of me. At, at, at creative, I am this authentic, well-honed, authentic version of myself that I really discerned and worked very hard to, like a martial artist, to, um, to embody. At integral, that self moves to object. I start to notice that I'm uh, opposite selves. I'm masculine and feminine. I'm light and dark. I'm authentic and I'm inauthentic. I have vast parts of me still at reactive or earlier. It's not that you're done with any of that. It's a layer in me. I now have an even wider perspective on it. And it's, a, it's more of an embrace of acceptance and compassion. Like, oh, okay. I recently had, it was right after the book came out. Uh, I won't get into the particulars, but um, my ego system crashed. <laughs> At one point, I... I was on a walk in the park over here, not far from here. And that was middle of winter. And all of a sudden I saw it. I went, oh my God, I am my ideas. No wonder people experience me as so arrogant. These ideas make me up. Bill had rated me four and a half out of five on a five point scale on arrogance in the last 360. My, my co-author. <laughs> my, my, my first move, like all of our clients, is to talk him out of it. <laughs> you don't understand, Bill. You made a mistake here. So I called him over. I said, Bill, you gave me four and a half out of five on arrogance. He goes, uh-huh. I said, that's like six standard deviation units above the mean. I mean you must see me as the most arrogant guy in the world thinking he would soften his position. And he just goes, uh-huh. <laughs> I then worked after it was very painful. And I made two choices. One, I want to learn how to collaborate better. Two, I want to know my arrogance. It's in the way I want to see it. And I want your feedback. I want to know it. Now, this crisis I described where I'm in the park is two years later. And all of a sudden, I'm throwing up. And I come out of it and I'm, I see it and it moves, you know, this whole 
energetic, cathartic movement. And I go, oh my gosh, I have been blaming him for being so arrogant and I'm the one that's arrogant. And I started laughing. And then I wrote Bill and I said, Bill, I've been wrong. And I've been wrong in the partnership for a lot of years. Let's talk. And he wrote back and said, I feel your heart, brother. Let's talk. And we had an extraordinary conversation and uh, it's taken our business and our, our relationship and our business to the next level. The, the way we're both showing up and the effectiveness of our leadership and our co-leadership is um, palpably different. And um, so this is the integral move. Oh, I'm the arrogance. I'm, you're not the enemy. I'm the enemy. They are us. Oh, I have this in me. I've been projecting that on you. Let's talk. It's that kind of a embrace that is more the integral mindset. Because presumably at the, the creative or self-authored, you've kind of developed a strong sense of self and that's meant I am one thing and I'm not the other things that I've kind of developed away from. Right. So at the integral move, it's like the shadow. We can let the shadow in or the polarity in again. And, and there's a kind of more freedom and fluidity in that. Right. We're less defensive. Right. Which then as a leader allows us to let the polarities live in the surround and hold bitter tensions and big conflicts and unresolvableness and complexity without the need to react against it and go like make somebody wrong for it and blame and do all the stuff we do or, or even champion some vision over top of it. Like we know the way, uh, or there is a right way. And that the integral leader can hold the full ecology, diversity, complexity of the, of the messiness because I can hold it in here. I can hold it out here. And I am not separate from it. It's mirroring me. I'm a microcosm of the things that are working and not working in the larger surround. And that makes the leader really effective. Really effective at listening, at dialogue, at understanding, at, at being, you know, very skillful in, in bitter conflict i was just to, i was just had a chance to meet uh president jim carter jimmy carter and um you know you see the pictures in his museum of he and uh you know the egypt and israel peace agreement and uh and him just holding the space for that and it's really quite remarkable uh he is a good example of a leader who was quite integral, mm. both as a president and probably not as experienced as he needed to be to be, to be as effective as he could have been, but certainly now and in his later years, making tremendous contribution. And, and also in your book, you mentioned Mikhail Gorbachev, who also was able to diffuse the the kind of polarity between him and Reagan by by kind of, uh, you know, moving up uh, to a whole different level and giving, he doing saw, the first move. He saw their contribution to the whole structure. 
In other words, you build bombs, we build bombs. How are we different? You call us these names, we call you names. Wow, I'm part of the dance. I'm the problem. I am the, I am the enemy you accuse me of. So he walks in and says to Reagan, I'm here to deprive you of an enemy. Reagan was defenseless. I'm here to, like, this is really uh, profound. Love your enemy. Take the log out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly enough. These are spiritual, but they're very high integral type uh, uh, principles. And just to come back to a point you said that, you know, um, and I want to ask you about how we can distill our purpose and vision. You know, when we're reactive, we're made up by others, kind of um, uh, what we perceive others want us to do, or they're, you know, we're maintaining relationships and a sense of safety. When we get to creative, we're, we're more authoring our own story, and that, that involves like visioning in some extent. And then when we go to integral, we are able to see that our purpose and vision is stalking us. And I wanted to say, I wonder what you think. Is it, is it because once we move beyond that creative where we see that we're not just one kind of um, ideological self and that we're open to our shadow and all this multiplicity of selves, that then we're able to kind of um, open to the idea that we're not in control as much as we thought we were. You know, which at one stage would be a very scary idea, you know, because I'm Joel, I'm in control, I can make all this happen. And then we open to the idea that kind of life has a, life's happening. And yes, we're participating, but maybe we're not in control as we, in the way we thought we were. Yeah. I'm just trying to think how that's happened and unfolded in my own life. I started out making dog food. I ran. I worked in a manufacturing plant that made livestock feed and dog food, and uh, I'd spent a lot of years in my college time working uh, in environments that were about the development of people and spiritual and psychological growth and all that sort of stuff, and I was. I grew more and more frustrated with where I was in my life as I worked in that environment. And um, one night in the middle of the night, it just got really clear. I was working late at night. I won't get into the whole story, but out of my mouth, unrehearsed came, I'm not becoming who I am. And it was loud. I'm not becoming who I am. And And that actually then long story short, I started a journal. Uh, what do I want my life to be about? What are the 10 things? And I don't mean bucket list things. These are aspirations for my life. What seems to have made me most alive. How do I know from my life experience already where I come alive and where I go dead? Uh, and I started to sift that and distill out what brings me alive, what doesn't, and 
how does that inform me about the life I came here to live that if I'm not about it, I'm living someone else's life. And I wrote about, uh, I don't know, I wrote a journal on that. And as it progressed, it became frighteningly clear. Like I remember thinking, if I write this sentence, there's no going back. Because it's, if I own that truth, then my life has to change. And I don't know how to do that. And that means leaving the family business and it means a lot of things and I have no idea how to do what I'm writing here. I wanted to help people grow and develop spiritually I had, and, and psychologically. I'm, I had no background at that. I had, and I had no sense that you could build a life on that. Like it's motherhood and apple pie. You gotta be kidding me. I'm gonna bet the farm on that. I pulled that journal out about 15 years later. I found it in an attic and I read it and I wept. I broke down and wept because everything I'd written, everything was happening. And it was happening in ways I never could have imagined because I didn't know then. I didn't know about this profession. I didn't know. So not only did I not know how, I didn't even know the, the basic form this was going to manifest in. And it was all happening. All the themes I'd written about. Then 15 years later or so, maybe longer, I'm listening to Steve Jobs say, you know, when you look back on your life, and of course he knew he was dying then, that speech at Stanford that he gave, which is extraordinary. So when you look back, all the dots connect. When you look forward, they don't connect. You can't see it. You can't see how the dots connect looking forward. Now, mind you, Steve Jobs left college to, and got interested in calligraphy. Now, what in the hell does calligraphy have to do with anything? Well, when you look back, that dot makes sense. He got interested in fonts. He got interested in, you know, the artistic. And the Mac was... First Mac uh, incorporated all that stuff in ways he never could have imagined at that time. So that's where you start to get this notion that it's stalking me. Mm. Like I look back over my life and went, wow. All, all I could go, I could spend the rest of our time talking about all the various experiences of my life that didn't make sense then why I was so interested in statistics in college when I'm spending all of my time down in Kentucky in a farm for, you know, building houses for the poor and building community and helping people grow and develop. And, and, and I come back and I'm studying stats. What's that got to do with anything? So move into self-authorship is distilling out what's, how are these dots that have been happening 
what brings me alive? What, and, and so, and you literally have to bet the farm on it. It's like, I remembered back to certain experiences where I said, I've never been more alive than in that experience. Yeah. And what was that trying to teach me about who I am and what I'm here for and what really matters? And, and then, it, then it ultimately becomes, okay, I'm going to make a jump here. I'm going to make a move here. And it, it will feel like I don't have enough data and I'm betting the farm on motherhood and apple pie. That's how, it's been, that's how it felt to me. And you, but you said there's no safe way to greatness. And you're not going to know how until you look back. And the dots aren't going to connect until you look back. Right. And, and there's no guarantee it's going to work out. So, so to people listening, that would be one way that, you know, I know a lot of people listening are coaches and they're coaching people who, who are maybe making this shift from reactive to creative or self-authoring leadership. And so how can you start to author your own story? How can you tune into this purpose, this calling that's stalking you? Um, so you said looking around for what is it that you that brings you alive that you're passionate about and starting to it's like um moving into relationship with that yeah and helping people sift the database of their own life like Mary Oliver has this poem called the wild geese she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You Like, this is easy. This is a thousand mile long. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair. Yours, I'll tell you mine. So if you think this is easy, let's, let's talk. Tell me about despair. Yours, I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the mountains, the prairies, deep trees. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself. The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, lost, desperate, confused, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese. This is a powerful line, harsh and exciting. We've all got harsh experience. We've all got times when we were juiced and alive. The world calls to you, offers itself to your man, calls to you over and over, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So how do we help our clients listen to how life is announcing your place? Harsh and exciting experience over and over. And uh, all I did was sift that database. And uh, 
if I did anything right in my early years, it was to take on experiences where I would put myself in the vicinity of what I loved, you know. So I had a database to sift. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody has done that as consciously or deliberately, but nonetheless, uh, that's how you get onto it. What brings me alive? So like putting themselves in the game, you know, like being right. around the thing that, that they're... Right. Get, get close to it. Get near to it. Uh, and if you don't have it or you think it might be, go go volunteer or go do some experiments in that direction and see what happens. Watch your experience. Then you got to trust that something in the soft animal of your body loves what it loves and is responding because it's core or it's important. It's part of the, it's one of the dots. And there seems to be something built inside of us that, you know, I notice in my own life, these cycles where I, I live at that edge, you know, that edge of my, what's calling me. And, and um, I feel the aliveness of it and I dare to take a risk and, 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 and um, allow something new to come in. And, um, and then, you know, I may get kind of comfortable there. I stay there. Like, it, it, you know, it's good to be on that edge, but after a, some amount of time, it becomes more comfortable. And, and, you know, I'm kind of being safe again. And then yep. after a period of time, I feel that call again. So, Yep. You, you launch the vision, you create it, you bet the farm on it. And uh, at some point it manifests and matures. And I'm actually walking through for those who are on the call who are, are familiar with um, the adult years by uh, Hudson at the Hudson Institute, you know, in their cycle of renewal, you get to a point where now it's the same year over again. And I've, I've done that. And the soul is a jealous lover. It's, uh, it refuses to invest itself in a compromise. And when it moves on, it moves on. And there's more I'm here to be about. And I'm not done yet. And, it's, and then you're right back in the same suit. Okay, what matters now? Even though all that I've created now has, you know, it's, it's meaning, it's good work. Uh, it actually has me embedded in a structure that's hard to extract from because I've been successful. I'm in the middle of all kinds of things that would keep me there and in it. And um, now you're in another bet the farm. Uh, how do I transition from this into the work that wants to unfold next and not jeopardize or blow apart this? It has its own life. And um, so uh, I think leaders in later stages of life just uh, that have been successful and have come through and, and, and self-authored a, a successful, you know, organization and leadership and moved up and whatever, wherever that's taken them often come to this place where, um, um, 
something else is trying to get my attention. I don't even, I'm not sure what it is. And that's where I think we open more to, oh, it's not, I'm not authoring it. It's authoring me. This larger mystery that we exist in and through seems to want something specific for me for its unfolding. And that's, I think, the integral informed by grace, informed by a deeper unity that pervades everything and is everything and that is living everything, including me, or what I call me. How do, how do you listen to that? You know, because there's, there's listening to what's calling you from the reactive to the creative level, and now we're talking about it from a very different, in a very, very different way. Like, how do you, how do you does that show up for you? Um, same, some ways the same way. Uh, there's synchronicities that happen. Uh, I'm interested in my own work now of really working this very territory of integral informed by grace. What's the transition from creative to integral, but informed by unity, informed by, um, a larger understanding of who and what we are. And so I'm surprised when all of a sudden people are asking me to talk about that. <laughs> and I'm not prepared to talk about that. <laughs> I haven't like put in the time. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's showing up. So that's one way is reading the signs. Stuff starts showing up. And the other is uh, a contemplative practice. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. A, and a, and a contemplative and intuitive contemplative practice. Um, what I'm interested in more and more, and this goes way back, I spent four years in the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, which is about the auric field and working within the energy field to affect healing. Now that can all sound quite woo-woo and far out there, and I can't prove any of it statistically, like I've spent a lot of my life doing. <laughs> but... Uh, as that four years went on, the experiential learning became so intense and so profound that it's almost unmistakable. And in that system, the body doesn't give off an aura, an energy field. Energy field is precipitating the body. So these layers of denser and denser light are the mechanism that create and manifest matter at this level and living matter. And we exist consciously on all these levels. 
So I am not this body. I'm not in this body. This body is in me. I'm not, my brain is not thinking. I am thinking the brain's a transceiver. The body is scuba gear. I'm a scuba diver, I got a certified diver. I put on this gear so I can descend to a level of depth and pressure and breathe and look around and take it all in. Mm So the body is our scuba gear to locate attention, to breathe, to take it all in at this level of density in manifestation. And ultimately we run out of air <laughs> and we got a surface. So when we say this is who I am, well, it's actually not true. I am all these levels that are arising as a larger manifestation out of unity. And I am conscious on all these levels. Therefore, if I learn how to open to them and get access, I have immediate access to information about the very question you raise. How do I know? How do I get information? Well, it's coming through. Comes through when I meditate in language that's precise and um, gestalts that are, oh, I get it. I don't understand it, but I'm getting something here. And um, so I'm really interested, and I think this is related to integral informed by grace. How do we, how do we expand our mental model of what we are? the mechanism that we as human entities are because they're way too limited. They're way too, as Ken Wilber would say, flatland. And that actually, that cuts us off from accessing and trusting what we already know. Yeah. Presumably, the contemplative practice then gives us the direct experience, which then gives us trust in a new mental model, like the maps, as Ken Wilber would say, are really important. They're not the territory, but, um, you know, and nevertheless, the maps are important. They do inform us. Yes. And um, the maps, we wouldn't sail west if we didn't have an idea that the earth was round. We wouldn't have sailed west from Europe We didn't have a mental model. The earth is round, not flat. Mm. So the mental model, just having models, whether they're, and there are different models here, but having models of our multidimensionality as beings is, points us in a direction. Well, if that's true, then some of this other stuff could be true. And I, I start to experiment in that direction. I start to have experience in that direction. And um, if we didn't have the inkling of a mental model, we wouldn't do it. 
And then, of course, our experience starts to confirm the substance of the model. Like, I really do get information that I didn't know. And and I did this experiment years ago where I went traveling and I was learning about intuition and I didn't know whether there was any validity to it at all. So I had an exercise that would get me access, uh, called it a teacher exercise, and I have a conversation with my teacher, an intuitive conversation with my teacher. I would write down everything that I got, and I, I decided I would do that while traveling for three months with my wife, and I would do it every day for three months, and I'd write it down, and I wouldn't judge it. And if at the end it was all BS, well, that was a interesting experiment. Uh, but I wouldn't judge it till I got back. Well, it turned out to be profound. Profound. And uh, I would literally write stuff down I didn't understand, only to meet somebody later in the trip that would confirm it or get a, somebody give me a book and I'd be reading the book and I'd be going, that's exactly what I wrote down. Go back to my journal. Huh. Hmm. It was then that I just started, decided to leave organizations, go out on my own and start my own business and, uh, and so on. So there's a practice here that I think can inform us. Yeah. Yeah. Like really refining our, faculties uh self as an instrument in a way um getting out of just experiencing ourselves in our rational thinking which is great but if that's all we experience ourselves as it's limited so expanding that that kind of spectrum of where we're able, able to sense into and then picking up that information and learning to kind of trust it and and act on it and and lead from that place i feel i don't know what you think about this but i feel that like this is a conversation i'm in more and more these days and that strikes me you know you talked about these signs and that strikes me i think there's something going on it seems to be a conversation of our time and that the times we're in are bringing out that conversation i don't know how you feel about that yeah uh let me come right to that but i want to do a little I saw a movie recently, which I thought I thought to be quite profound and it was called the man who knew infinity. And it's a true story of a young, uneducated boy who um, had minimal like high school education in math and sciences and whatever, very poor writing down, just literally writing down as fast as he could write down complex mathematics that took a hundred years to prove out. Most of which proved out. His name was Ramanujan. Uh, and he ended up at Cambridge. When asked how he got it, how he did this, because he provided no proofs, just writes it down. Like here's the conclusion, you know, the mathematical theorem. Well, how do you know that's true? He goes, I, I know it's true. He said, well, where do you get this stuff? He goes, I don't know. It comes to me when I pray in my dreams on the lips of the goddess. 
And if you study math and science, a lot of where these hunches come from, these basic intuitions that become then the focus of the hypothesis or a breakthrough, uh, it comes. And so at the end of the movie, his guy who brought him to Cambridge, Thomas Hardy, says, He's an atheist, doesn't believe in any of this stuff. He says, he actually comes to the conclusion, we don't invent these formula. They lie in wait for us. We don't invent these formula. They lie in wait for us. So that kind of um, process is what I'm talking about. And you say it's coming in now. Why now? I think because whether this is true or not, our backs are against the wall as a species. And we need to invent new solutions, big ideas, both technologically, socially, politically. We can't continue to live as a species the way we've lived and we've built a whole world order uh, that has to actually fundamentally make a shift or we're not going to survive. So our backs are against the wall. We need to bring in big ideas. And my sense is they lie in wait for us. And what happens when we can do that, not only individually, but collectively? When there's a collective opening and expansion of, of, of our ability to, to collectively draw in. So, yeah. you know, we're way out on an edge here, but I think this is where the post teal mind goes the teal and beyond and it's authoring me i just i'm reading for the third time a book by jude curvan i think it's how you, how her name is jude curvan on physics it's called the cosmic hologram and it's straight physics quantum mechanics relativity how it's all coming together it blows your mind what's emerging that at some, at some very fundamental level, even prior to, and don't, don't hold me to the physics here, but because I'm not, prior to the, to the quantum level, it's all information. It's all bits and bytes. And the amount of information in the space is a function of its perimeter, like a hologram. And so with the second law of thermodynamics, the universe continues to expand, entropy. And with entropy, the perimeter expands and the hologram becomes more informed. <laughs> Therefore, continues to learn and evolve toward greater complexity and complexity toward life and conscious life and higher conscious life. 
until it's conscious of itself as source. And this is who we are. This is what's living us. This is the integral informed by grace, but it's not just a, a theology. It's actually, we're starting, I think, to see the actual physics of it. Yeah. Well, what you just shared was almost like a physical, uh, could be a physical dimension of like evolutionary consciousness, you know. that The whole thing is evolving, yeah. right? It's becoming more informed. And everything is arising from the original oneness, which she says, by the way, the Big Bang was neither big nor a bang. It was perfectly orchestrated unfolding. All the perfection was there at the beginning. Otherwise, it would have just blown itself apart. It was not an explosion in that sense. It was too perfect. Um, so... It's all continuing to evolve. And it, because it, reality is alive, unitive reality is alive, it naturally moves toward greater organization, complexity, matter, conscious, you know, living matter, conscious living matter, conscious of itself, and ultimately, I think, conscious of itself as source mm. or yeah. enlightenment in what the mystics have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we just actually ran a coaching program called Coaching from Source. So it was about how do you move beyond the part of you that wants to get results, to get to the destination in order to look good, to get approval, um, you know, all the things that you might find in a reactive or a creative coach and, and not to reject the good things about those, but what is it like to surrender and to let go of the need to, to get something, to get anywhere and just to open to what's here and allow itself to reveal itself. And people were blown away. You know, we just, we didn't know, we, we just created the program. We didn't know if it was going to be a success or a, what but people have been so touched by it and i share that because it mm. i feel it it's part of this story of this kind of consciousness flowering more in the world and um yeah you know in and the and the, and the explosion and people interested in collective awakening we space mm. awakening all those things give me a lot of hope yeah me too it's our only hope mm. Well, I'm aware um, of the time. I just became aware of the time, actually. Yeah. And actually, um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I actually was not aware of the time for quite a long time there, yeah. which to me is um, a beautiful sign of just being immersed in a kind of very emergent, delicious sort of conversation, um, which always seems to happen when I'm speaking with you. So, yeah, yeah well, very grateful. Likewise, I don't come prepared because I know that we're going to create something together. It's going to be a lot of fun.
Hello everybody, it's Joel here again. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I wanted to give you the heads up about our online coach training program, The Art of Developmental Coaching. It's based on the pioneering work of psychologists over the last decades that show us how human beings actually grow and develop in their lifetimes. They uncovered these stages of consciousness that we can move through in our lifetimes. And when you learn to coach developmentally, you learn to help your clients uncover the hidden level of consciousness or hidden operating system that has got a hold on them. And they start to be able to see it in their awareness. And amazing things start to happen then. They they start to have choice over that. Um, They start to see all the assumptions and beliefs that that had a hold of them and um, that that kind of colored everything they were seeing. So it creates more spaciousness more and more choice and more power. We have some of the, what I think are the world's finest minds um, on how you coach developmentally. Something that I struggle with, I read about these theories, but I struggle with how do you actually do this for years? And, and then I discovered people like Jennifer Garvey-Berger, Rob McNamara, Bob Anderson, Bob Keegan, Doug Silsby, and they are on the faculty of this program. So great people to learn from. And if you want to know more about how you can do that, then head to coachesrising.com forward slash art of developmental coaching. And you'll find out more information there. If the course is uh, open for registration, you'll see it. If it's not, then just chuck your name in the email box you find there and we'll let you know when we do again.